I'd like to invite you to find page 1046. Our sermon reading this morning is from Luke 23, verses 33 through 43. Luke 23, 33 is where we'll begin. It's on page 1046 of the Bible in front of you. A little bit of introduction, both about this passage and about sort of where we are in our church year. You are, um, what we normally do in our church is we follow what's called a liturgical calendar. So Advent is something that we're all used to. It's sort of the days that lead up to the coming of Christ at Christmas time. After Advent is Epiphany. After Epiphany is a season called Lent where we prepare ourselves for Easter. There's about 50 days between, 49, 50 days between Easter and Pentecost where we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then after Pentecost, we have more than half a year sometimes. We call it the season after Pentecost. And then it starts again at Advent. So Advent is really the beginning of the church year. And it's offset from the beginning of our calendar year by about a month. So this is actually the final Sunday of our church year because next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. So next Sunday is the first Sunday of the new church year. So just to help orient you, uh, tonight or today is kind of like New Year's Eve, New Year's Sunday Eve before Advent. And so we should have a party tonight around midnight and go, woo, you know, or on, maybe on next Saturday night we'll go, Advent starts tomorrow, the new year begins. Let's make some, some uh, let's join the gym, you know, go ahead and make some resolutions that you break three weeks, three weeks later. I joined the gym, I went once. Uh, then we moved, so I'm going to get back into it, I promise. Actually, all that moving with boxes up and down stairs, I'm sure that was more of a workout than I was ever going to get at the gym. But right now, my gym money is just going down the tubes. You know, it's just like, like I, could light, I could light my money on fire. It would be the same thing. So, well, I'll get back to the gym. So this is the beginning, this is the very end of our church year. And the name of this particular Sunday, this festival, is called Christ the King Sunday. Or the festival, or the reign of Christ Sunday. And actually, it's kind of a recent addition to the liturgical calendar. It came about in 1925 by one of the popes in Rome named Pope Pius, I forget his number, I think the 11th or the 12th. And he was of the mind that the church at the end of the year really needed to celebrate and proclaim the lordship and kingship of Jesus over the whole year that had preceded it and over the whole world. And so it's a really, it's a good sentiment. And for some reason, many Protestant churches agreed with him. And so here we are using what we call the revised uh, common lectionary or the liturgical year. And we're celebrating today Christ the King Sunday. I'm telling you all this because it, as you've noticed from some of the readings that, that Marion did, there were, from Jeremiah, there was this talk about the shepherds, and often a shepherd is kind of an image of a king in the Old Testament. And even here in, uh, in Colossians, it talked about Jesus as the king and sort of the nature of Christ being related to God and having God's fullness dwell in him in the flesh, in this world. And today's reading might take you at a bit of a surprise because today's reading is the account of Jesus being crucified from Luke's gospel. And so you would say, why are we reading sort of a Good Friday text the week before Advent? It's because in here, Jesus is called the King of the Jews in a mocking way. Yet it's true. And so it is about the lordship of Jesus even in the moment of his death. 
even in the moment of his sacrifice for the world, he is yet king, although he's not being treated like a king. And what I want to look at today is that Jesus comes to us to give us what we truly need, salvation, new life, and yet people despise him because he's not bringing them what they want. He's bringing them what they need, but not what they want. And so there's no room for, them, for Jesus in their hearts, and we're going to see that. Um, so that's uh, a bit of the reason why we're reading this text today. Um, and I'm, I'm not a slave to the church here or the lectionary, so I could have certainly chosen another text for today to preach from. I want you to know that. It's not like there's some list that your pastor says, well, I have to do that today. But I looked at it and I thought, no, this is, Pope Pius is right. You know, I agree. We want to set apart a day, and it makes sense to do it at the end of the church year, to say, yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus is Lord over all this mess. <laughs> and if there's anything we've seen in the last two weeks is that we've got mess aplenty everywhere, you know. And so a comforting word, but also a challenging word, is that can we let Jesus be king of this? And can we let Jesus give us and bring to us what we truly need and set aside what it is we think we want? so that we can receive what he has for us. So uh, that's a bit of the introduction on this day, and just a bit of introduction on this text. And the only thing I'm going to say is that there were many, over the years, uh, in, in the Jewish faith, there were at times many people that came forward claiming to be the Messiah or acting kind of like a Messiah, and some popular energy would kind of center around those people and then, of course, they were always a disappointment because none of them really truly were the, the Messiah. And so none of them could really truly deliver. Usually what people were looking for was some sort of military leader who was going to, to liberate them from whoever was oppressing them at that given moment. It could have been the Greeks or the Romans or the Assyrians or anyone else. Uh, and so uh, just in general, there was not a lot of patience for false messiahs. If somebody was deemed to finally have been a false messiah and gotten our hopes up, then they, they would turn on you pretty quick. They're like, we, 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 don't, we don't suffer fools lightly, you know. So we're not going to, we don't, if, if somebody kind of lets us down, we're going we're gonna to turn on them pretty quick. And I think that's what we're seeing here with Jesus. Even though they were looking at the true messiah, he was not bringing them what they wanted, but what they needed. And so they turned on him. The same crowd that welcomed him on Palm Sunday, on Good Friday was calling, or on, on actually Monday, Thursday, late in the night on Monday, Thursday, early on the morning on Good Friday, they were calling for his head. And so the crowd turned on him very quickly because they sensed that he was a false messiah. So that's a little bit of the background historically that probably will help us as, I, as we read this. So I'd like to go now to our reading on page 1046, Luke 23. And again, this is Luke's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. 
And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the Messiah. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you this Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? Pardon me. That was a mistake. I apologize. I just noticed that my chin was rubbing that at times, and that was going to cause problems. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to do something a little different, actually. And I want us to ask you to go find your Bible and look at the text again in your Bible. It's on page 1046. And I really only want to look almost exclusively at just one verse of this. Because I think this one today holds the key for us, for what God, I feel like, wants to say to us today. And I only want us to really look at verse 35. Okay, so take a look at verse 35, and I'm going to read it again for you real quickly here. It says this, The people stood watching. Now remember, these are the same people who earlier had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, uh, spreading their clothes and palm branches on the ground and for him, uh, before him, sort of as a, as, a, as a conquering king would enter into a city. So there was this great expectation about him. These same people, when Pilate asked them, should I save Jesus? Because I don't think he's done anything wrong. Or should I, should I let Barabbas go free, who was a murderer? All the people said, let Barabbas go. These are the same people. Let Barabbas go. What should I do with Jesus then? Crucify him, they yelled out in, in loud voices, crucify him. The same people, the same people then who said that came to the place to watch what was going to happen, which makes sense. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, and here's the part that I think we really want to focus on today, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, or the Messiah of God, the Chosen One. And so what I really want to do is uh, focus on two things here. What the people's reaction was, and the rulers, and there's an inherent contradiction in there that I think is the key that kind of unlocks a lot of this for us. And I'm gonna, we're going to sort of unpack it. So bear with me. I think this is, this is fascinating stuff. 
Um, Jesus had been popular with the people. The news of him had spread before he even got to Jerusalem. And if you look through the Gospels, you see all sorts of great stories of what Jesus had done. Feeding 5,000 people with just a little bit of food. Raising people from the dead. Not just his friend Lazarus, but other people, right? Uh, healing sick people. Casting demons out of people. Controlling the weather. You know, this is pretty good stuff. As far as messiahs go... Jesus was, the authenticity meter just kept on rising, just kept on going up. Oh, this could be the real deal. So then Jesus gets to Jerusalem and everybody's like, all right, he's here. The Messiah, this new kingdom is going to be ushered in. Let's go to the edge of town. Let's open up the gates. Let's invite him in so that he can do for us what we really want, which is to free us from our oppressors. And so there's this great movement. But then it starts to fall apart. And, and it falls apart pretty dramatically and in short order. Because Jesus doesn't do any of these things. He doesn't raise an army. He doesn't call down fire from heaven to consume other people or other things. He goes to the temple and he sets about offending a lot of people. All right. Then he leaves again. Then he talks about how the temple's going to be torn down. That's not very popular. Just before he had gotten to Jerusalem, he had actually made some real critical mistakes in some people's minds. Remember, we preached about this two, three weeks ago. He went to Zacchaeus's house for dinner, but nobody else is in town. And in fact, he was leaving town when he decided to go back only to have dinner with Zacchaeus. That was not a good move. That was bad optics. Okay, that was not a good move. And so even though they were welcoming him, they're like, well, why did he do that? Why did he go to the house of a tax collector? There were some problems. And then there were some other rumors from the trail. You know, why was he eating with prostitutes? Why was he eating with these other sinners? Why, why was he doing this? Why was he touching lepers? Why? We're not sure. We're not sure we like all this. But, but the works speak for themselves. Now, this is one of the most interesting things. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem... And this is some work I've kind of done, and, and I, I could be wrong about some of this, but is the miracles kind of stop. There are no healings after Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He doesn't heal anybody. He doesn't cast demons out of anybody. He doesn't control the weather anymore. He, the only thing he does, and, and I don't think this is such a big deal, because I could do it, is he, he looks at a fig tree that's bearing no fruit, and he curses it. And the next day they find that it's shriveled up and died. Okay? So it's a miracle, yes, but it's kind of a destructive one. And, and the reason why I say I could do that is because I only have to touch a green plant and it will die. I am that bad of a gardener. I'm on the landscape committee, but I have no idea why. Actually, I do know why, but you just, I can choose the plant, I can help choose the plants, but don't ask me to touch any of them because I have the yellowest thumb in the world. So that's about all that Jesus did that final week. So here the people were full of expectation. He's going to overthrow our oppressors. He's going to keep on healing. He's going to bring some great portents from the sky, fire and clouds and hurricanes and things like that. And instead they get a dead fig tree, no healings, no miracles, no nothing. And so from the space of Palm Sunday to Good Friday, the mood in town has really soured on Jesus. That explains the difference. Do you understand? 
Because at the beginning of the week, he can do no wrong. At the end of the week, it's crucify him. How do you get from here to here? Well, you underperform. You, you give less than expectation. You ever, if you have a, do, you, do you all have this at work? You know, below expectation meets expectations, exceeds expectations. They were all hoping for exceeds expectation in the job matrix. Jesus was like barely, not even touching below expectation. Like what a disappointment. This is a false Messiah. Maybe those stories about all the other stuff weren't true because he's really not performing in this final week. And we don't have any space in our hearts for a false Messiah who's not going to do for us what we hope or expect. And so at the end of the week, it was crucify him. So here's the crowd, verse 35. The crowd came out to the place to watch all this because they had asked for it. They had asked for the crucifixion, so they went out to watch it. Okay, so there's that. Then next we have a phrase that says, the rulers even sneered at him. Contempt. Uh, and these are, the, the word for ruler is the Greek word arche. It means the first. This is where we get words like archaeology and things like that. Things that are first. And these are the first people or the, the, the top of the society. So they're the best and the brightest. They're the ones who get seated first. They get greeted first. They get good tables at restaurants without calling ahead for reservations. They just show up and say, oh, well, well, we'll move these rabble out of your table and you can have this table. These are the first, the arche. The first, the best, look at Jesus, and they sneer and they ridicule him. And here's another Greek word, kind of like grumbling, which was gogizomai. This one for sneer is ekmikterizo. They ekmikterizo upon Jesus. They Literally, it means they turn up their nose. Mm, like something stinks here. So I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I just, I'm going to turn up my nose at you. This is literally what it means, is to turn up your nose. If you look at Psalm um, 22, you get kind of the similar uh, sense. And this word is only used twice in the New Testament, both times in Luke. Uh, here are some of the English translations that we have in various Bibles that talk, that translate this word. So some of them say to ridicule, to sneer, to jeer at, to scoff at, to laugh and scoff at, to show contempt for, to insult, to make sarcastic remarks about, to make fun of, to mock, to deride. That's not a word we use every day. I deride that. To deride and to turn up the nose. One Bible translation translated it literally. These are all the reactions that the first and the best and the brightest of Jerusalem have towards Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. They're making fun of him. They're jeering at him, scoffing at him, ridiculing him. And this isn't the first time Pilate makes fun of Jesus. The soldiers that whip Jesus make fun of Jesus. And everybody is saying the same thing. And actually, I'll, I'll, I'll just point out that in the Greek, this is the, in the imperfect tense. All that means is that this is never, this is an activity that goes on. It's not concluded in the space of this narrative. It's not completed. So this, this jeering and this scoffing and sneering and turning up the nose is an ongoing sort of constant stream of insults being hurled at Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. And I think that kind of rounds out our picture of the crucifixion. When we think about the physical pain, we think about the spiritual pain. But there's this element of it that we don't always focus on, which is that people are hurling insults and abuse at Jesus verbally. Verbally. 
all the while he's hanging on the cross. Remember, I remember this, and it's like the biggest lie they teach you in kindergarten. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Wrong! That's wrong! <laughs> words hurt like crazy. Words hurt more sometimes than actual cuts. And here Jesus is on the cross, and people are, are turning up the nose at him, insulting him in a constant stream. So like the ba- it's like background music, but it's not great music. It's like, it's like acid metal or something like that. It's really grating, terrible. I hope you don't like acid metal. Any acid metal lovers out there? I picked one that I didn't think. You love it? Okay. No. Yeah, all right. You love acid metal? I, I doubt it. Okay. So um, here's, what, here's the core of the sarcastic comment. Here's the core of the mocking. And yet inside the core of it is this contradiction that unlocks everything, I think, for us. And it says this. What is it? It says, he saved others. This is not the first time anyone says this to him. He saved others. If he's the Christ, he could save himself. But look what they say. Not he claims to have saved others, or we heard that he saved others. Somebody somewhere had seen this. This was well known. He actually was powerful. He had actually changed the weather. He had actually cast out demons. He had actually done all these things. He's actually that powerful. So where is the source of the ridicule? He won't save himself. He won't act in his own self-interest. He'll help other people, but he won't save himself. What kind of crazy person is that? Now, we have the benefit of having Christ's example for us for the last 2,000 years to the point where we actually think that that's a noble thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? We think it's noble if somebody will sacrifice themselves for somebody else. And we think it's noble if somebody will look out for somebody else and not take care of their own self, right? There are cultures where that is not looked on as a noble thing but as a ridiculous thing, something to sneer at and scoff at and say, how could we trust or believe in somebody who will not even take care of themselves first? Right? It's kind of like the, uh, on the airplane when you're sitting next to a kid, and maybe it's been a while, but they, they tell me, put on your own mask first, then put on your kid's mask, which really makes sense. It's just logical, right? I, my kids can't put on their own mask, and if I spend all my time trying to put on their mask, and then I, they can't put on my mask, so I put on... My mask first and then never. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He puts on other people's mask first. And he doesn't even get to put on his own mask. And so people looking at him saying, that's so foreign to me. That's so alien to me. That somebody would save somebody else and yet not lift a finger to save himself. He deserves our ridicule, our sarcasm, our scoffing and insulting and our turning up of our nose at him. And so there's this, the contradiction, though, is that they actually believed he could save himself. They actually believed he was that powerful, but they thought he wasn't the Messiah because he wouldn't do it. And here's the truth in all of it, is that he was the true Messiah because he wouldn't save himself. He was the true Messiah because he saved other people first. He was the true Messiah because he came to serve, not to rule. 
He's the true Messiah because he doesn't try to control other people, but because he tries to empower other people and give them the Spirit. This is what the Messiah truly looks like, but the world, at least at that time, not all of it at least, was ready for that. Only a few. But since then it's spread. And now, if we look at somebody, even in popular culture, even, even in a context that's completely devoid of religion, if we find somebody who actually sacrifices themselves to save others, we praise that person. Right? Back then that was unheard of. Back then that was like, why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. So it's important to note just how much the example of Christ has changed culture in this world, praise God for that, and how he set the standard for what noble action really looks like. But these people wanted something, and Jesus wasn't giving them what they wanted. But he was giving them what he, they needed, because in that moment, he was saving them. And this is the great thing about Jesus. It's kind of in, a little bit in reverse order, but as they're crucifying him, and probably as they're hurling insults at him, he yet says to his father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because the logical inconsistency is there. It's like the people wanting to go back to Egypt. Remember, they wanted to go back to Egypt because they thought the food was great back there. It didn't make sense. We want to go back to slavery? No, that doesn't make sense. But the same logical inconsistency is almost there. He has all this power. But since he won't use it to save himself, he must not be the Messiah. No, if he has all that power, clearly he's the Messiah. He's just not the Messiah that you were hoping for. He's a different kind of Messiah. A Messiah that serves, a Messiah that saves, a Messiah that gives his life for others. It's different, and it's better, actually. So the tragic thing, and, 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 and the sadness in this story is that as they were hurling insults at Jesus, he was in the process of saving them. And to me, that's most, the most poignant picture. And I wonder, this is an aside, but I wonder if we could do the same. <laughs> if somebody's insulting me, instead of internalizing that, it's kind of like the story, you know, that I told the kids is that dot going to stick to me or is it just going to fall right off of me? Instead of internalizing that insult, can I be of the mind, I want to serve this person. I want to love this person. There's something going on here that I need to pay attention to and I want to reach out to them in some way. Now that's kind of an aside, but that's what Jesus does. That's the image of the cross. He's hanging there, suffering physical pain, spiritual pain, emotional pain, Sarcasm, scoffing, and turning up of the nose, ekterisomai. And he's saying in a prayer to the Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're not even thinking straight. They're claiming I have this power, but since I won't use it for myself, they can't imagine that I'm the Messiah. But really, I am. And I think this is where sometimes, in our worst moments, is where we are. And this is maybe where we maybe have some application for ourselves. Because it seems like we know that God is powerful. We know this. I mean, the evidence is all around us. It rained yesterday. Praise the Lord. Things are growing in this world. My son is reading books about animals. 
and he's finding animals I've never heard of. And I'm like, this is amazing. Look at the diversity of the animal world. The animals in the ocean, the animals on land, it's just fascinating. The, the handiwork of God is all around. The heavens declare the glory of God and all creation sings of his handiwork. We know God is powerful. We've even experienced God working in our lives in mighty ways. I know everyone in this room has had some moment where God has reached into your life and done something for you. So the evidence is all around us, but we forget. And we say something like, we know Jesus is his son, and we know that he brought mighty power to save. We know all these things, but we don't quite want what God is giving us some days. Do you all understand what I'm saying? I'm going to say it again, maybe in a few different ways. God brings us a Messiah in his son Jesus who serves rather than rules, who who empowers instead of controls. But we, we sometimes want a different kind of Messiah. We want a Messiah that will push our own agenda forward. We want a Messiah that's going to agree with us. We want a Messiah that's going to do the things we want done in the world. And God wants nothing to do with that. God wants the Messiah to bring us the Messiah that saves and serves and prays a prayer of forgiveness while he's receiving insults and sneers. And it's hard to accept that Jesus every day. We want the other Jesus that doesn't even exist. We want the Jesus that will push for us and and be right for us. I mean, we like being right. We like being admired. We like being well thought of. We like all sorts of things like that, but the Jesus that God really offers us isn't going to help us with any of those things. Instead, he offers us a Messiah of service. And that's what kingship looks like for Jesus. He isn't offering us what we want. And these are maybe some examples. He offers us what we need. He offers us more than we could get for ourselves because we want to work for ourselves. He offers us a feast and we want a candy bar. He offers us a limousine and we want a bicycle because we can pedal it ourselves, right? He offers us a pruning hook, but we want a spear. He offers us sacrifice, but we want victory over our enemies. He offers to love our enemies, but we want to destroy our enemies. It's a big difference. He offers to help us lose everything for him, but all we want is to win and to see other people lose. This is how we are. In the midst of it, this is what he says. I'm the king. This is what being king looks like in the upside-down kingdom of God. It looks like dying and saving and serving and forgiving and consoling and refusing to save himself so that he could save us. And so I know I need to look at my own life. I need to look at my own life. Because I'll tell you, it's fun to win. You know what I'm talking about? It's, I'm not talking about football. Because I'll, I'll just update you. The Arizona Wildcats lost. Well, now they're, they're uh, what are they, 9-2? and two? No, they're 10-2. and two. Who would have thought of it? No, no, sorry. I got that totally, totally backwards. I got that totally backwards. They're 2-10. and 10. They've lost 10 games. Oh, my goodness. And they haven't won a single Pac-12. Most of you don't care about this, but, you know, if I really liked winning, I, I, I would kind of go hide in a hole right now. I really do like winning, but I've given up on them. I, like I said, when they lost to the Mormons, I figured God's not on their side, so why should I be? It's just, when they lost to BYU, I said, that's over. I'm a fair-weather fan. But I love to win. I love to win arguments. I love to win points. I love to win games. I, I love to win spots in line. I love to beat the street light. I love to speed past slower drivers. I like to win, you know. 
I like to show other people that I'm stronger or smarter or more talented or richer or happier. Okay. But if I want all those things, then the Messiah that God brings me is not for me. It just won't work. Jesus doesn't offer me any of those things. He doesn't offer me victory that looks like that. He offers me something else. He offers me something I could truly use. And I want us to challenge you, maybe this week, to be asking yourselves, what's the difference between the Messiah I want and the Messiah I truly need? And say that again. Think about the Messiah that, in your unguarded moments, you truly want. And and how much your own human nature has influenced that desire. And then rejoice in the Messiah that God has actually given you, the one that you truly need and deserve because he made you, because he loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son Jesus is king over all this earth, all the beauty of all the creation that he has made, and king even over broken humans and broken institutions and nations and, wor- and this whole world. And Lord, thank you that he comes not as we hope or wish or want, but he comes as we need, not to rule but to serve, to give his life for us so that we might be yours again. Amen.